Greetings! You are listening to Horror Nerds in Church, a podcast where we take a deep dive into a horror film and talk about what it can teach us about God, the Bible, and each other. My name is Joe, and I am the horror scream queen of the seminary world. Every day I'm in seminary, I find something to scream about. And I am Pace, and I am Laurie Strode's awful, awful wig in this movie. You know, you know, Pace, uh, I, I think we need to give you more credit because there are some, there were some scenes where the camera caught you as the wig in a very flattering light. I think a lot of it dependent on what position Laurie was in. That one scene where she was just lying catatonic, the wig looked like it would. You looked like you were going to fall off Lori. <laughs> oh my goodness. The, when she first gets wheeled out of the house, like in one of the opening scenes after the credits and she's being wheeled into the ambulance, it looks like that is the worst the wig looks, I think. It is so bad. It's so bad. It's like worse than Stanley's toupee in Golden Girls. It's like bad. <laughs> that That is pretty bad. I was I was gonna say I think I think the wig that Jamie Lee Curtis had to wear in the movie that we're going to do today is probably the only wig in the history of the movies that cannot be salvaged by any creative camera shots. <laughs> oh my goodness. Before we do our deep dive into this episode's movie this episode's movie, let's uh are there are there any announcements? So Also, two other quick announcements. So today's movie is Halloween 2, and we'll talk about director and all that in just a moment. So, And we're currently watching our way through the Halloween series. So I wanted to ask you, Joe, and maybe our listeners can weigh in as well. I'm curious. So Halloween is a pretty straightforward series as far as the movies, except for they take place in different timelines and stuff, and we'll get there when we get there. But one movie kind of stands out, which is Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. And it stands out because the the movie that was the theatrical release is almost an entirely different movie than the what is called the producer's cut of Halloween 6. And so they actually have released the producer's cut, which is supposed to be closer to the director's original vision. It is a much better movie than than what was released in theaters. So when it comes to Halloween 6, and this is a little bit down the road, so it's something to just start thinking about, unless you have an answer now. Do we want to do an episode on the theatrical cut, on the producer's cut, or do we want to do an episode for each? And I'm kind of thinking, I know another podcast that did an episode for each when they went through Halloween, and I'm kind of leaning towards that. But I'm curious what you are thinking and what our listeners are thinking. I think right off the bat, I would be in alignment with what you're thinking episode for each version of the movie, just because we'll probably be diving into a lot of the difference. That's obvious point number one, but I'm sure there must also be some interesting behind the scenes information. Yeah. That we could probably share that led to these different iterations of the movie. But like you said, Pace, Maybe maybe uh, folks who are listening will have a better take on how we should handle the 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 complexity that is Halloween. Yeah, it's the theatrical cut is really a 
pretty bad movie, but the producer's cut is pretty good. But what's interesting about them is for our purposes as a podcast that doesn't just look at horror films, but the religious symbolism and um, theology behind the horror films, I feel like the religious imagery of both films is different and what they're trying to say and do. So I think there's a lot we can get into with that too. Okay, yeah, I wasn't, that didn't even occur to me that uh, each iteration of that movie could evoke different religious imagery and themes. So this is really making me lean more towards doing an individual episode of each version of, just because we don't want to pack all of them into maybe one or two episodes and compare and contrast those, get everyone confused about which is which i think i think the material deserves to stand on its own analysis and the best part though is paul rudd is essentially the final girl of that movie and it's paul rudd and it's amazing and so we get double the dose of paul rudd and i'm always for more paul rudd yes that is the main reason why i want different episodes because we get to look at paul rudd for you know many fun hour (laughs) yeah and just to keep our listeners at home interested i am have a headcanon about paul rudd's character in that movie being queer so i'll explain that when we get to the episode but so just to keep you interested and to pique your curiosity pace can can paul rudd be queer in real life too can he be my lover he come oh over my to god, me? if only. Oh wait, no, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm TMI. Okay, so here's a quick question. There's a point to this. Joe and I easily could have started a Golden Girls and theology podcast. So it's really between horror and Golden Girls. and It's coming, it's coming if the audience wants it. Yeah, oh my god, could you imagine? But, <laughs> so we could have a spinoff podcast of our own spinoff podcast. But. Joe always claims that he is a Rose Nyland, if you're familiar with the characters. Rose is kind of the naive one. Played by Betty White. May she live forever. And um, I think that Joe is more of a Blanche Devereaux, who is more of the, how shall we say, uh, horny one. Oh my. No, no, you're right, Pace. Literally, Rose says it in that one episode. Blanche, you're not a bad person. You're just horny all the time. (laughs) So now this is my question, which, and I'd love to hear our listeners' responses to this, which of the slashers are each golden girl? So we have Freddy, Michael, and Jason, so that's three of them, and we can throw in Leatherface, I guess, or Ghostface from the Scream series, pick one to be number four. So who do you think is who? Well, I just want to let the audience know that I was not prepped about this deep probing question prior to our recording. (laughs) So if you're feeling overwhelmed and as if you've been assigned to write a paper, (laughs) I'm with you. Because Pace, that's a deep question. It it takes some thought there. I don't know. Like, right off the bat, I want to say that Jason is probably Rose. Okay, okay. Because I feel like he is kind of more naive. You get his backstory as a child and stuff like that. And so you can, so he, and he also doesn't seem to be as quick on his 
thinking skills as some of the other people. So that's Jason. I think Freddy with his wisecracking sarcasm is clearly a Dorothy. I was going to say Dorothy and then I was like, maybe Sophia, but no, he's clearly a Dorothy. I think Dorothy, yeah. And that leads Michael as Blanche, I guess. I can kind of see Michael as Blanche. Michael is very, like, he was young. He was very good looking when he pulled off his mask in Halloween 1, the original. So I can see that. He can get it. And I guess Leatherface, since he's the original slasher franchise killer, he can be Sophia as the oldest. Because he would be, he'd be the one that would be in Shady Pines while the rest of them were still out there <laughs> killing all the teenagers. Picture it. Texas, 1967. I have a bunch of, I have a bunch of cheek skins dangling from my ceiling. <laughs> I am dying. Oh, you know, I would like to make a case, though, for Michael Myers to be Rose. And here's why. <laughs> that famous head tilt that Michael Myers does, where he seems completely mystified by these corpses of people he just killed. So that's example number one, is the famous head tilt. And number two, from Halloween 2, which we are going to get up get to for this episode number two is in a scene in halloween 2 it was uh he gets he gets uh shot at repeatedly by dr loomis right but but (laughs) but michael just stumbles and just keeps trying to do what he has to do as a deranged serial killer possibly of supernatural otherworldly origin and it's funny to me because he's got he's riddled with bullets and yet his gestures to me suggest a kind of what's happening to me i would like to do what i have to do rather than a oh they're trying to kill me and i'm i'm evil i see it and i would add one more thing that came to mind as you're thinking so i think you've convinced me that rose is michael because rose loves dogs and so does oh, michael no they love they love dogs and entirely dis. <laughs> yes. Spoiler for Halloween one, which by now, if you're listening to the second episode of our Halloween series, you I would hope you have seen would have seen one. But Michael does eat dogs apparently when he gets hungry. It's heavily implied, I would yes. say. I mean, that one line of dialogue still sticks out in my head. I think it was the sheriff who said, "It's still warm." <laughs> yes. And Loomis, who goes, he's hungry. Yes. Oh, my God. All right. I don't think at that point it's an implication anymore. Right. Um, We got into that debate last week. So if you are listening to this and are like, oh, you, that was just a metaphor. He's not actually hungry. It's like, okay, you can listen to our take on that debate last week. And for the record, you're wrong because it is meant to be taken literally. I think that's my controversial opinion. It's a hot take, as the youngins say these days. Right. So one other quick announcement is you'll see in our feed um, that we're going to start having a mini episode, which will probably come out every other week, we're thinking. And these will be basically real life horror stories that are it could be a ghost story. It could be a story of like, uh, oftentimes many of us who are queer or People of color have all sorts of trauma around churches. 
So um, it could be that kind of horror story too, like a true life, this church treated me like shit horror story. And so we're going to start, we'll have listeners, you're welcome to send in stories. I'll tell you how to do that in just a moment. And we will read them probably two or three stories every mini-sode and just kind of talk about that side of horror and church as well, because that is so much a real thing. And if you listen to our introductory episode, Joe and I both told real life horror stories about church. Mine was more of a ghost story, or it could be, like I said earlier, like real life. This is how a church did me shitty or something like that. And that's fine too. So submit them to, you can submit to them to us by emailing us if they are particularly like I know some some horror stories can in real life, just like in the movies, can be kind of triggering or graphic and stuff like that. So we might not read those kinds, just depending on the audience and stuff like that. But nevertheless, send send them in and we'll try to read as many of them as we can, like two or three every other week and go from there. Yeah, yeah. We don't we don't want we don't want anyone reliving or rehashing any past trauma. We we just wanna we just wanna hear from you. What have you experienced of the supernatural or the otherworldly, or as Pace pointed out, some all too real life horror stories. And so we might also be sharing some of the our own stories during these mini sets too. So so definitely check them out. Like that story just. Okay, I think is that it for announcements. I think so. Okay, so moving on. In case you didn't gather from the introduction, the movie we're covering this week is Halloween 2, the 1981 film, not the Rob Zombie remake from 2009, I want to say. Also called Halloween 2. This franchise is so confusing. So we have three Halloweens, two Halloween 2s, and then a bunch of other Halloweens. So it's it's a thing. But yes, Halloween 2, 1981, directed by Rick Rosenthal. Produced and written by Deborah Hill and John Carpenter. Rick Rosenthal was a name that uh, was familiar to me right off the bat as a fan of the Buffy the Vampire Slayer TV show. I I, I know you have issues with Buffy Pace. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's more with Josh Whedon than Buffy. I like Buffy for the most part just fine. Yes, uh, Josh is problematic. Again, he could be another podcast episode perhaps a podcast series altogether <laughs> but yes halloween 2 the 1981 version directed by rick rosenthal who many years later in buffy the vampire slayer's sixth season would direct one of what i consider to be its most iconic episode called normal again where buffy is poisoned by a demon she's fighting and she hallucinates an alternate future where her life as a slayer is a dream so rick rosenthal keeping he's fairly consistent in the material he likes to work with so what is there anything else of note that you can think that he's done well let's see i have his imdb pulled up here and yeah i'm just seeing a lot of a lot of, uh, as far as movies are concerned, a lot of genre genre films. But he has also done a lot of work in TV shows, many of which I've enjoyed. Drop Dead Diva on Lifetime. He did one episode of that. Oh, and it looks like he was a multiple director for Smallville. Did you ever catch Smallville, Pace? Yeah, yeah. I am a Superman fan. So 
It's not my favorite iteration of Superman on TV. That would clearly be Lois and Clark, which is the by and far the best Superman series of all time because I grew up in the 90s as a kid. I quite enjoyed Lois and Clark to the degree that I, I literally have the theme song still still in my head. I, I'm remembering it right now. It's a, a bit strange. <laughs> it looks like Mr. Rosenthal also did a couple episodes of The District, a show set and about your current hometown. <laughs> I did not know that. Very cool. But his biggest credit, aside from Halloween 2, is they brought him back to do Halloween Resurrection, which many say is the worst entry of the franchise. And it's so different tonally from this film that I don't think anybody would recognize as the same director. So how do you think he did on Halloween? Oh, we'll get there. Um, <laughs> before we do, though, what do you, uh, do you, what are your first memories of this film? When was the first time you saw it? I think my first time that I ever saw it in its entirety was high school. I had a friend in high school who was a huge fan of the Halloween franchise, and he lent me a VHS tape, kids. I don't know if you remember what that is. (laughs) And I popped it in, and Halloween's one, two, and three were on that VHS tape. It was one of those six-hour deals where it could hold three movies. And I had seen bits and pieces of Halloween, too, of course, as a kid. My mom, as I've said in um, our previous episodes, she had me young. And so she was a responsible adult and was and is a great mom who also still had her teenage, you know, energies that drove her to watch, you know, slasher movies. And I do remember bits and pieces of Halloween, too, as a child. How about you, Pace? I see the Halloween franchise. This is me as a bad horror nerd. It's the franchise that came to pretty late, even though it's so iconic and it basically defined the slasher genre for a decades to come. I don't think I watched the films until my mid twenties, and that that I tried to do my first. I basically in my mid twenties. I got Netflix back when they used to send DVDs in the mail (laughs) as opposed to like their digital stuff. So I was trying to use Netflix to basically two or three movies a month or whatever it was. Um, I would try to fill in all the horror classics I had missed. So I, I did that, tried that with Halloween and I watched the first one and enjoyed it. And then I tried to do a marathon of all of them and I got, through up to about Halloween four or five, and I got bored of them, and because I I do think the franchise kind of has some of the lower dips out of all the long lasting horror franchises, and it happened the first noticeable one I think happens uh, between four and five, but I caught most of the Halloween like clips of the Halloween films going up he- here and there. If it was on TV, I might watch it or something. But I, I, they all kind of jumbled together because I don't have distinct memories of them because I would only see little. I'd come into the movie like halfway through or something until my twenties when, which I think is the first time I saw Halloween two, and I actually loved Halloween two the first time I saw it. I think it was my favorite in the franchise after Halloween, like my sec, I guess my second favorite then, and I, it was just like right up there. It was so good in my mind watching it, but then rewatching it now in the past few years 
my opinion has changed a little bit over it and we'll talk a little bit about why but it's i still think it's a pretty good film you asked how rick rosenthal did as a director and i i think he did his best considering this was his first like big feature film for him to be to try to capture the same kind of mood and atmosphere of the first movie i think he did as good as he could given the script he got i John Carpenter and Deborah Hill have gone on record saying that this movie, they didn't want to do a sequel to Halloween. They thought Halloween stood on its own and horror sequels, believe it or not, were not a huge thing back in the late seventies. Um, Hard to believe, especially yeah, in this right? day and age. But not, nonetheless, they, the studio pushed them into doing it. And I think they ultimately like told John Carpenter that they would produce another one of his movies um, and basically let him do whatever he wants with it, providing he came back for Halloween too. And so he wrote the script and he said that basically the script was like, it was just writer's block. He could not figure out where to take the character. And when you watch the film, the finished product, you can kind of sense that there are some kind of dead ends that must have happened in the writing room that don't really get picked up again. So some loose threads and stuff like that. It feels very forced. I still think it's good. Don't get me wrong. I still think it's a quality slasher film. It just, it doesn't come close to really encapsulating the, the quality of the first film. And I think because the first film was made on such a tight budget, it really, they really had to work within parameters to like, they're very limited. And so when you have these very tight parameters and are limited in many ways, it really, I think it can encourage a lot of creative thinking and getting outside the box. Whereas if you have this huge budget, suddenly it's like the possibilities become so limitless that it can, you can kind of, uh, I think you get a little bit of just too much, overwhelm in the writing room or the director's chair and it it can become kind of muddled and i think that's what happened here what about you what are your thoughts well i'm wondering if one might consider halloween 2 to be an extension of the first halloween which is to say these two constitute one whole movie mainly because when Halloween 2 opens, it literally picks right up where the first Halloween left off. And by, if one were to look at it that way as a singular movie with, you know, two different directors, it sort of reminds me of how the book of Isaiah is notable for how most scholars believe that the first half of Isaiah was written by a prophet likely named Isaiah. And then the second half of that book is a mystery. And they attribute this to the tonal changes of that book. And so the fact that Halloween 2, literally, it just follows that same night <laughs> from the first movie. And what is the gap that we have here between the two movies? Two two years? Three years? Uh, three years, I believe. 1978 to 1981. Yeah. So that's a very long night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm wondering, you know, if it could, it might be looked at in that way. I, I think for sure. There's some interesting issues I'm going to point out as we go through it that this movie causes for the first film, particularly around the revelation that Laurie and Michael are related in this film. So there's a little bit of that happening with the Laurie stuff with Michael. 
particularly like in the first film, Laurie's dad asks is a realtor and he asks Laurie to drop off the keys to Michael Myers' house on her way to school, which she does. If now think about it now with this revelation, if her dad knows that Michael Myers is her brother and he's not his her real father, he's her adopted father, and he he knows that the Myers family, she's part of the Myers family, he's telling his adopted daughter who has pretty much forgotten all about the Michael Myers stuff to go back to her family, her birth family's house 15 years after her older sister was murdered on that, like on the 15 year anniversary of her older sister's murder to drop off the keys. Like that just becomes kind of like so cruel and twisted. Like why would her dad tell her to go to the source of this trauma, knowing it might bring back some memories or all sorts of stuff on the 15 year anniversary of her sister's death. Like, that moment in the first film just falls apart when you look at the revelation of Halloween two. And I think that's also probably why one of the reasons why in 2018 Halloween, they retconned that whole stuff and only went with the first film because of those moments that don't quite make sense anymore in the original. Right. And the revelation that Michael and Laurie are related occurs halfway, just about halfway through Halloween 2, and it just feels so shoehorned in. It feels random. It literally is an event that is not, that is literally not depicted. It is a conversation that uh, Dr. Loomis and his uh, colleague have in a car, (laughs) and they just drop it like, like, oh, by the way, the governor has a sealed file on who Laurie Strode really is. <laughs> what? Where did this come from? Yeah, so many potholes. Because like, if Loomis has been Michael's doctor since the beginning, he would have seen a young Laurie. You know what I mean? Because there, Laurie has that flashback where she visits. We presume it's Michael and the institution that he was being held. And I don't know if it's a prison or if it's like uh, some sort of clinic or what it is, but she you you see Laurie's visiting michael and he turns around in the chair like this young michael and looks at her and so so like presumably loomis would have known that he was getting visitors back then and the other weird thing is Laurie does have this very brief flashback where she basically the flashback this occurs while she's in the hospital and it occurs a few minutes before we learn from the dialogue that joe just mentioned about how they're related from the governor's sealed file, whatever the secret that was. But Lori has this weird flashback dream sequence where she see, first sees her like in the backyard. She's talking to a woman and there's like who's hanging laundry and the woman's like, stop calling me mother. I'm not your mother. So we don't know who that is that her birth mother trying to say you're not my mother because you're getting adopted and stuff. Or is it her adopted mother just like being very cruel to this child she just adopted? I don't know what's going on there. And then soon after that, she has that flashback about Michael. We presume it's Michael in the asylum or whatever it is. And like, that's it. Loomis never tells her that Michael is her brother. So did that dream teach her that Michael is her brother? Or does she spend this whole movie not knowing that that revelation? Like, that's part of the weirdness of the dialogue. It never is communicated to her why Michael is here at the hospital chasing her again. Yeah, and, and tonally, that flashback just makes no sense. Because even in the in the few minutes or so 
of that flashback where this little girl is trying to get the attention of her mother. And as you said, her, the mother says, I'm not your real mother, stop bothering me or something like that. It doesn't square with how Laurie comes across in the first movie. She seems very well adjusted. She seems to have a good relationship with her father. She's a star student and she has a good circle of friends. It, it does not seem like she had an emotionally isolating childhood. We kind of mentioned this in our first episode, kind of how there's this loss of innocence. And you compared it to the Virgin Mary, too, how this kind of destiny is thrust upon her, whether or not she really wants it and that kind of thing. And that's clear in the first movie with Laurie, whereas this one, by making it related, it changes kind of the whole, first of all, it changes the motivation for why Michael is healing. And I won't talk about that like in depth later, but it really does turn Michael into this killer who is aiming to kill his sister and it's killing people along the way, but that's his end goal. Whereas in the first movie, it was, Laurie was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And it was just, and so were all the other babysitters and, and her friend circle that were murdered. And it's just this random killing act. And I think that's almost more scary than the revelation that Michael's just after his sister. It really unwinds that whole notion of fate, which is actually brought up in, in the first Halloween during the scene with um, Laurie in her English class, recall. So, you know, fate, destiny, and it really unwinds that by just making her a relative of Michael. It just brings a whole new meaning to any interpretation that one might have made in the first movie. So from the beginning of Halloween 2, one thing that strikes me is that clearly the budget is bigger. <laughs> so the song Mr. Sandman start, uh, starts playing, and I don't even want to imagine how much they paid to have that song included in the The other thing that strikes me, that struck me, is, is the jack-o'-lantern on the opening credits. And many, many of the critics have a fairly conventional view of that as saying, oh, this is clearly tying, you know, this movie to Halloween one. But for me, I was admiring sort of like the technical prowess of that. It's a very good opening sequence for a movie from that era. It's, it doesn't look cheesy to me. I thought it was very well done. Definitely. Like it references the first and it's kind of keeps that simplicity initially, but then the reveal that it's a skull inside, I think was like you said, very yes. well done. And it's still like close enough to the first that it feels in the, where the first just had that jack-o'-lantern just glowing in the well opening credits world. So it still captures that, but then it builds on it in a way that makes sense in a progressive way. It's one of the few things that I think actually is really progressively building on the story from the first one in a way that I think works. Right from the start of this movie, you know it's uh, you know it's not the sweet little indie movie that the first one. Also interesting is that most of the opening thing I think is just recycled footage from the final scene of the final scenes of the original. But there are a few noticeable differences. One is 
Michael falls off a balcony this time, and that balcony was not there in the original. So I'm curious about that. Like, did they add a balcony to the house, and why did they add a balcony to the house? I don't know. <laughs> what was going on in the writer's room? Did they? Did someone just say, you know what? I think it'll look better if Michael falls off a balcony. <laughs> and in the age before, like, home video really took off, because this is early, early 80s. So, like, VHS was just becoming a... Th- so, like, it, those kind of minor retcons, like, the audience would, wouldn't really notice, because you wouldn't have seen the film since it was in theaters or since it played in TV, however long ago that was. So, so I, so I think it works and I, I don't have a problem with that. I, I just wonder, like you said, what, what is the reasoning for that? Is there a, was, did the house change? Like the filming location, like was the balcony added to the house in real life? Is that the motivation for it? I don't know. I'm wondering if they thought it might've been such a subtle change that nobody would remember it from the first movie. And Recall that the uh, entertainment culture at that time is not the same as it is today with all sorts of serialized storytelling and everyone being much more astute about continuity. I agree 100%. Like the whole idea of canon really didn't become a thing until really the late 80s and especially in the 90s now it, it became a huge thing. And today, like so many fandoms argue so much about what's part of canon, what's not. And the Halloween franchise, you can kind of see them trying to figure out what the canon is as they go along, because the whole franchise gets rebooted a few times with soft reboots and hard reboots, and then whatever Halloween 3 is, just an alternate universe sort of situation, which we'll get to next week. (laughs) But we we already watched that one too, spoiler alert, so so it's fresh in our minds. We know what we're talking about. (laughs) But... So so it really plays with continuity. The the franchise really kind of, I guess we could say, problematizes to use fancy academic language or it queers or kind of it fucks with, I guess is my favorite academic term for this. It fucks with the continuity and with canon. So so I really like, so I do like that about this um, franchise as a whole and especially how, two is kind of this film is kind of the film that people either have to decide are we going to include it are we going to do a direct sequel to the original and ignore two or are we going to do a direct sequel to two and ignore four and five what i think what i think is really impressive about Halloween two is that they they managed to get jamie lee curtis back Uh, oftentimes actors who really want to move up will not necessarily want to return to a property that they've already acted in and this brings up this brings up the point of the wig what is up with that face why does she have to wear this wig oh my goodness uh, so she got her hair cut short kind of i mean the, i'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with jamie lee curtis she tends to wear shorter hair um even now and has through most of her life so I th- and this wasn't too long after prom queen i don't think which where she had one of the first movies where she had a real short haircut so i just think her hair was short too short and they didn't want to wait for it to grow out so just throw a wig on and since most of the scenes are in the dark like even her hospital room the lights are almost always off the film can almost get away with it it doesn't quite work on hd that we have now on our hd yeah and and the other interesting thing about her coming back is she didn't want to at first but they talked her into it especially 
um, when she found out John Carpenter was returning. So she felt she was returning kind of as a favor to him for helping launch. It's wild to think about this because obviously Jamie Lee Curtis could not foresee that she was a huge star and an iconic one at that. And some something else of note here too is just the change in Laurie's character. And in the first film, she's so resourceful. This film, she spends most of it unconscious or drugged up. Uh, so, of course, that would affect her ability to be resourceful. And I think that was an intentional choice because we've already seen that Lori can easily best, well, not easily, but how resourceful she was at besting Michael. And so I feel like that was the writers, John and Deborah Hill, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill's way of trying to figure out a way to make Michael scary again for her and more of a threat because if she already bested him is like she it's clear that she already can can win in that but as a consequence though then you get a lori who is kind of the opposite of that really i guess proto-feminist strong woman character in the original whereas now you just have this woman where actions keep happening around her without any sort of her say she she even gets injected with one of the sedatives against her will so so it really kind of takes out any agency the character has from the first i'm wondering if uh if john carpenter and deborah hill had realized they had written themselves into a corner with how brilliant laurie was so to kind of recreate the the fear and tension of of the first movie they could only really inject her with that sedative number one so use drugs and number two just play up the trauma so that she's essentially you know trapped in that in that cycle uh, of fear uh, as if she had never overcome it with her resourcefulness in the in the first movie and so what we get is a jamie lee curtis who doesn't really have a lot of dialogue. And I only realized that somewhere towards maybe the middle of the movie, and I said to myself, Laurie isn't talking very much in this movie. (laughs) I think it's such a strange dynamic. And I I wonder how it felt for Jamie Lee Curtis from an artistic point of view to barely have any dialogue, yet be so visible in the movie critics will correctly point out that she really doesn't have anything to do except be helpless although from a a pragmatic standpoint i would venture to guess that jamie lee curtis was also thinking well i'm gonna get a good paycheck out of this so if laurie if they're gonna if they're gonna make laurie uh not as strong as she was in the first movie and not have her talk that much all right whatever I want to piece together the timeline from Michael's point of view, like, because somehow he got from Smith's Grove in the first movie to Haddonfield. Somehow he can magically drive a car. He does that really quickly. And then he has enough time to break into a convenience store and steal a mask to stalk Laurie several times throughout the day in creepy locations. Break into the school, we find out in this movie, he broke into the school and wrote, uh, Sowing pronounced Sam Hain in this movie, a common mispronunciation. But he breaks into the school at some point and stabs a picture with his knife and then writes Sowing on the uh, chalkboard in blood. And then he somehow is able to 
walk to the hospital and end up in a nurse's car. So all this fits in the span of a few hours, along with all the murders he does. So it's just, I I really want to see how he gets from point A to point B. And do we know exactly how far Shady Pines, Shady Pines, (laughs) (laughs) Smith's Grove, (laughs) do we know, do we know how far exactly Smith's Grove is from Haddonfield? Are they both in Illinois? Yes. I don't remember the exact amount. It's supposed to be like in the film is something like 40 miles or something. So it's, it's a drive, but it's not like a huge drive questioning the timeline is is a very valid thing to bring up earlier i had joked about this was a very long night because there was a three-year gap between the two movies but as you're going through halloween 2 you're also thinking how late is it in the night what time is it because there's still a lot of kids trick-or-treating yeah and yet somehow all the kids that were being babysat were in for the night while other kids were still out trick-or-treating like it's just the timeline doesn't quite make sense and the other thing i want to point out at this point too is just how the first film purposefully left it ambiguous whether or not michael is superhuman or just like has some sort of evil incarnate in him which is clearly what loomis thinks but the film leaves that up for the viewer. Like when Michael escaped at the very end of the film, did he crawl off into a bush to basically die or is he up and walking around? And this film turns him essentially into the Terminator. And in fact, the Terminator is apparently based off of Michael Myers, but and you can see it in this film. He gets up and immediately. Another fact I didn't know about. Yeah. Yeah. And James Cameron has gone on record saying that because you, Get Michael gets shot in the beginning, falls off the balcony, and then is up and running about enough, well enough to go into the break into the old couple's house, steal a knife, then murder the teen, somehow walk to the hospital, and then we see him get shot how many times in this film, and he stills up walking around. He even gets shot twice in the face and is walking around. So this film's answer is clearly Michael is superhuman. Is that why he randomly wrote what he wrote on the chalkboard in blood? Are they trying to lay the groundwork for this otherworldliness? I think that's part of it. I think it's supposed to add to the mystery without actually having much thought behind it. It's clear. So the novelization of the original Halloween movie, the person who wrote it kind of expanded it and added a little bit of backstory as a novelist want to do because a film as tight as Halloween like really doesn't have a lot of backstory. So the novelist took a lot of creative liberty and kind of mentioned the Sowing Festival in the novel. And there are a few scenes from the novel that were not in the original film that John Carpenter basically wrote into Halloween 2. One of which being Loomis's raving in the beginning about what what is it he says? He's like, uh, you don't know what death is or something like that. <laughs> Remember, yeah. like he's talking to the random yeah. neighbor. Like, so that was taken directly out of the novel. And apparently the sowing stuff was also taken out of the novel. And it's kind of just a throwaway line. Like, we don't really understand it. It's just kind of meant to like pique our curiosity. But this is where some of the later installments, particularly Halloween 6, really dig into this backstory about the Sally. And for 
and for the purpose of Halloween 2 and Halloween and the first Halloween, it's it's interesting to have this theme of Michael possibly not having any any other motivation or any other purpose to kill except to just kill pure evil incarnate. And that makes an interesting theme because you see everyone scrambling to control this evil force and it's very difficult to do whether it's michael myers or you know racial extremism (laughs) speaking of which i feel like i cannot think of any white of any non-white character of any person of color in the original film i i've take it that haddonfield i guess is a very white town this film i think is the only person of color we see the only person of color in either the first two films and this one of the nurses which is interesting to note just like how wonderbred this is and is that intentional or is that part of john carpenter's and the casting director's biases at the time i mean it's not unusual for films in the 70s to have like no diversity the nurse character in halloween 2 definitely um was noticeable for being a person of color but uh, her character also the way the actress gloria gifford portrayed her for me, it really pops off the screen. And I would have loved to see more more of her. And it's good to know that not only is Gloria Gifford uh, still around, she's a prolific tweeter. <laughs> oh, good to know. See, I, didn't, I don't know. Is she in anything else of note that you know of? I don't know anything about her. Yeah, yeah after Halloween, you know, she, she has a, a bunch of other, of other acting jobs. But I believe Halloween is one of the more prominent roles that she had played. That that's interesting to know. Speaking of the hospital, this hospital was wild. There were they are casually handing around sharps, like they do blood work on Lori, and the doctor just hands it to a nurse. No one's wearing gloves. The nurse is just carrying it around. And then there's a scene where you see one of the Ian, the ambulance drivers was are the is that EMT. He, he was smoking, I think it's a joint with forceps and you see, and there's like a ashtray in the hospital, like in the hospital, they're smoking, just a very different understanding of hospitals than we have today. Clearly this was filmed pre-HIV AIDS, so there's like really careless around bloodborne illness. Yes, yes, I, uh, I, I agree. And these are good criticisms to point out but me being a shallow human being all i could really think about was how jimmy one of the emts was so cute (laughs) oh that okay so laurie's weird flirtation with jimmy just feels so out about where did that come from like yes i agree with you he's cute but like woman you just first of all she's like i said earlier she's like being she's medicated this entire film so she's not fully with it yet she's with it enough to flirt with the ent why is he interested in her like the first movie we knew she was really into ben tramer and now she's like over him i guess and into this jimmy guy it's weird it it just feels so out of place Uh, again it's a question of the timeline because it was literally just the morning of that day when she was into Ben. <laughs> yeah. And now she's lying catatonic and this Jimmy guy comes out of nowhere. Right? And 
it's clear flirtation too and it feels so forced like we talk in about uh, we we talk in queer circles about like forced heterosexual romance how it happens so often in film and a lot of non-queer people uh, basically cisgender heterosexual people do not always recognize that how forced it is because it's just part of life and it's so we're so used to it but this is one where it's just forced there's no chemistry between between the act like it just it, nothing about it feels yes it's very random it it and it it's uncomfortable too because in a way it's also kind of a fetish fetishization of Lori. i mean she's she's catatonic and she's lying in a hospital bed i mean yes i did i did have that gushing moment a few moments ago where i thought jimmy was cute but i'm also a reasonable human being with a heart I'm not a monster and the the lack of the lack of um, consent really really sticks out. Yes, that that's definitely where the skeevy moments about this too is just that lack of consent, and especially with the other EMT we see, who's kind of this womanizing character. And there's 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 a scene, the scene, all the scenes he has with women are really gross, honestly. And speaking of jumping back a little bit, but kind of, I, I think it fits here is how uh, Nancy Loomis comes back just to play Annie briefly in a cameo as the corpse. That, so that is so weird. But so yeah, first thoughts on that. And then I want to talk a little bit about Sheriff Brackett there. So, okay. So quick recap, super quick, really. Annie died in the first movie. <laughs> Annie is still dead in Halloween 2. But it appears that the actress came back just to play the corpse as she's being wheeled out of the house. I'm sorry, I I I, I shouldn't be laughing. No, but so you know, bizarre. I mean, an acting job is an acting job, right? Yeah. But still, it's it's so odd. <laughs> I really, yeah, I really want to know what the conversation was with her casting agent, like with her agent. It's like they want you back for Halloween too, and she's like, "I thought I died." And it's like, "Yeah, you're gonna be playing." A corpse. They could have easily saved a paycheck by keeping the blanket over her face. On the other hand, it did add a really, a really powerful dramatic dimension because her father has to identify the body. So maybe as an actor, Nancy Loomis was attracted to that because actors are always looking for meanings in their part. And that's the other part I wanted to talk about with that scene in particular is Sheriff, like, it's just such a beautiful scene, I think. And I mean that as this kind of is one of those diamonds in the rough. So John Carpenter is clearly a brilliant thinker and writer. And you see that, especially in the first Halloween film, so many of his other films. And this is one of those moments that just is unnecessary to move the plot forward but it's a character moment that was put in and really helps make give the mo- give the film some emotional depth and also just just this really nice character moment where we see the grief of the night and the effect and toll it's having on Sheriff Brackett when he's his daughter there and it's something that is it's one of the few things i really like about the Halloween 2 remake is Rob Zombie brings back the sheriff character and Annie. I think they have different names, in the, but there's still that relationship there where his daughter dies and you see the grief 
of the sheriff in Zombies Halloween 2 play out in a very realistic and kind of hard to watch way, I think. It's such an interesting little dramatic and meaningful thread to pick up on and also repeat in in different iterations. It seems almost anomalous. Because in a movie like this, as you as you mentioned before, a movie like Halloween is a tight movie and it, it, it really leaves no room for backstory. But to squeeze in that little bit of, of a of a dramatic pretty impressive. Yeah. I I agree. And and there's so many little moments like this that just kind of they don't push the story forward. So in some ways it could be detracting, especially because Halloween is, like you said, is such a tight film that it really, there are those little scenes between characters, but it helps. It's like establishing the narrative and establishing the characters. Whereas this film, there's none of, there. there's not as much of that. Yet you still have moments, like two moments that I want to talk about specifically that don't really carry the story. But one is the boy who gets rushed to the emergency room after biting an apple presumably and there's a razor blade in his mouth and there's this really graphic scene where the his mom rushes him drives him to the emergency room and he gets out of the car and she asks him to pull a towel away and it reveals the knife like embedded in his mouth as like a razor blade lots of blood really gory surprisingly mom's really cool with it like she's just like parents of the 70s were a different thing i I, maybe it it is you're right it is a graphic thing it seems like a big deal but the scene is just directed so casually yeah it, it doesn't but but it just kind of that's that's one of those fascinating things about the scene is there's no indication that it was michael behind the razor blade in the apple like that it just seems like a snapshot into the horrors of small town life this has this boy bite into an apple that had a razor blade in it. it was a prank pulled by somebody in the town a really sadistic prank someone other than Michael. so this town has at least two very sadistic people who have some sort of killing tendencies or something like there's there's at least two people in this town so so it's just really strange like it just kind of shows i think kind of the one of the themes from the original film is just that I think is carried over into this one is just this small town idyllic neighborhood, the suburb and of Haddonfield. There's a lot of evil in this town that just kind of goes under the surface. And the fir- the first Halloween for me, it it really gave that impression of this is a this is clearly a social commentary, and it has and it has to be a reaction to whatever is happening in the culture of that time. And the sense that you get from the first Halloween is it's a changing world where you can't necessarily let the kids roam as freely as you used to be able to do. And you've got to start locking your doors. And I I really think the first Halloween seized on that. And so in addition to being just a really great horror movie and 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 a fun a fun roller coaster ride or the movie equivalent roller coaster ride the first halloween especially considering the limited resources they were working just makes a powerful punch on so many different levels 
including giving off that vibe of a social commentary. Whereas Halloween 2, it's just not concerned with that. It just wants to continue the roller coaster ride of the first movie. And yeah, it's not always a it's not always a consistent ride in Halloween 2. If we're going through the film, I think at this point is when Michael finally makes it to the hospital. And from this point to the end is basically one of the is pretty well done. And I think that the reason why is the original Halloween was really kind of narrowly pointing towards this one street in Haddon, Illinois, where Michael is doing this thing. So it's this really narrow, tight focus as we're talking about on the. And then the opening scene of this film is like really going back to a macro look at the, and seeing how all these pieces of the town are dealing. You have the mob, you have the girl on the phone worried about her friends who may have died, dying too. So you kind of see these different town reactions to what happened tonight, like play out in real time, which I, is one of the things I like about it. And But then it starts to narrow its focus as Michael gets closer and closer to the hospital. And once he gets to the hospital, like the film, I think, shifts tonally again to really being this cat and mouse chase, kind of the how the sec the third act of the original halloween and it plays out similarly here except now it's in the hospital i love what you pointed out about how different parts of the town are responding to what's happening this this seems to be a really good example of world building which is something you 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 find more of in fantasy and sci-fi movies, especially in Star Wars. A few moments ago, I feel that one of the strengths of Halloween 2 is that Haddonfield came to life. And in contrast with the first Halloween movie, the what Michael Myers is doing, his killings, they seem to happen in kind of a vacuum and isolation. And maybe that's speaking to the movie social commentary about the growing individualism that the, the American society was headed to at that point. And yet in Halloween 2, we get a better sense of Haddonfield as a complete community. And you know what? It didn't really take that much effort to, um, to do some world building. You just, you had to throw in a couple of really simple elements one of them being the newscasts that popped up during the movie and the reporting on the killings. And just and just having that, just having that really says that this is not an anomaly. This is not an isolated incident. It is affecting folks across the board, across Haddonfield. And I love that this is this is achieved in, as we've said before, what's supposed to be a really tight type movie um, with a very a specific and focused story. Now, there, there can be a drawback to having a specific and focused story because obviously you want Michael, you want to be following Michael as he does what he does. And, you know, for the purpose of on-screen drama and entertainment, you want to be there for when Michael is going to, you know, do what he does when he kills his next victim. So the drawback that I noticed with just having that that tightness, that focus, is 
when we pointed it out before Pace, we were talking about the timeline of this night, how it just seems to go on forever. And and it, it feels like it should be the middle of the night, but clearly everyone is still out and about. And one of one of the the example that I'm I'm getting to now is when Michael does in fact, as you said, head to the hospital. So he's walking downtown. <laughs> And we see that downtown is busy. You know, it's, 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 it's popping, as we say these days. And how far is the hospital supposed to be from the Haddonfield? So he walks to the end of a block and there's a sign. <laughs> I don't know why this makes me laugh so much, but there's a sign that says the hospital with an arrow pointing in that direction. And I'm like, oh, okay. Is it just down the street? Where is it? <laughs> yeah, that's so strange because it's called Haddonfield Memorial Hospital, so it must be on the outskirts of town. Right. But he gets there so quickly. Yeah, he, we, this is the strange part. We see him turn down. We First of all, we see the nurse come out of something and say she's going to take her friend home uh, reluctantly but because she's late to her shift at work. So she drives and leaves towards the hospital, presumably after taking her friend home. And then we see... Her arrive at, we, then we see Michael walk to the end of the block and turn left, like right after she leaves. Next time we see both of them, she gets out of her car and goes into the hospital. Michael is in the back seat of her car. How did he get into the back seat of her car? Did he walk? Like, I, I am so confused well, by this. If we're, if, if we're going for the whole otherworldly thing, we may as bring up. We may as well theorize on his ability to teleport at this point. He must be able to. He must. Like, there's no other explanation. For the world building, as I said, is really impressive in how Haddon is portrayed. But I'm also interested in this hospital and its staffers. So you pointed out earlier in the, in the podcast pace that there was only one teenage death. And the other characters who die are presumably grown-ups <laughs> uh and they those deaths are the hospital are members of the hospital staff and it's interesting to me how the what the carefree nature of the teenager that we had come to associate from the first movie and we got a glimpse of with the first teenage killing in halloween 2 was transposed <laughs> Onto these hospital workers, which is to say, wow, everyone in that hospital is really horny. <laughs> yes. So I have a headcanon about this hospital because there's some weird thing. First, a point of clarification. Yes, we know Ben Tramer is also a teenager and he also was killed in this film, but he was not killed by Michael Myers. He was killed by a cop who ran into him and it caused a huge ball, explode, ball of explosion. <laughs> I, I'm so sorry that scene... It just it makes me laugh because it was just so sudden and dramatic. How and how often huge explosion like a exactly car a new fan? How do they make huge explosion like that? How does that happen when a car? I, I can see that it can be a catastrophe for one vehicle to run into another, but then this turns out to be like a nuclear explosion or something like that. Yeah, it is enormous and part of the world building here that i love is that you're kind of talking about earlier with the world building of haddonfield is ben tramer is also wearing the halloween mask the uh, michael myers mask which means that 
Michael Myers just when he picked up the mask of the convenience store, it means that there must have been enough of a popular mask that it was like a real mask being produced and sold and some other people were able to grab it. So so I think that's part of the world building too. It like adds the realism that yeah, it's just a random mask that Michael found. It's not some exclusive to him mask. But it also then creates that great fake out where you're not sure did Michael Myers just die in the car scene and you it's still it's pretty early in the I guess it's about the midway point in the when this happened so it so it is really shocking because you think it's Michael Myers at first and then for him to die like that so suddenly and then the newscast is of course falsely reporting that Michael Myers is dead leading to some of the false security of the town after. <laughs> I just had a really random thought pop into my head. It's the kind of thought that's probably only funny to, and no one else. And you've known me long enough, Tace. Yeah. I, I do that. I, I like to make myself laugh. <laughs> Since these two Halloween movies seem to be so different from each other, even though they both take place on the same night, you know, maybe the Halloween two, the two, the the Roman numerals two in the title should be changed to Halloween, comma, T-O-O, as if to say, yes, this is also a Halloween movie. But, you know, it's not really a sequel because it's not good enough to be a sequel. They might as well have done that for Halloween 3, which isn't even a Michael Myers movie. This is also Halloween. (laughs) Oh, that is going to be a great podcast episode, folks. I'm excited. Halloween, that, that was a trip. That was a trip for sure. But so is Halloween too. And so we were getting to Michael being at the hospital at this point. Oh, yeah, and my hospital headcanon. Yeah, so one of the very alarming things about this hospital is it's Halloween night, which tends to be a busy night at hospital because people act foolishly and injure themselves. And you also have people apparently putting razor blades into apples in this town as well. So the hospital, you would think the hospital would be packed. But it is so dead in that hospital. There's only a few people on staff. It looks like there's only one doctor who's on call. There's like four or five nurses, a security guard, and the two EMTs. And that's the only people we see in the entire hospital. So it makes no sense. Unless my headcanon is this hospital is... There is a new hospital that must have been built maybe halfway between... Smith's Grove and Haddonfield, which is a new state-of-the-art hospital that they send everybody to. But because it's Halloween and stuff, they haven't quite closed Haddonfield Memorial Hospital. They're phasing it out. So, But they leave it open on Halloween for basically overflow. And that's why you get Lori in there and just a few and the little boy in there and a few other people. But because at the very end of the movie, they take Lori to another hospital. So I assume they, yes, must, be, they, do. they must be taking yeah. her to my headcanon i guess the new hospital the the state of the art actual hospital as opposed to this skeleton crew hospital which your 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 observation makes me think of daytime soap operas of which i am a huge fan and towns in daytime soap operas are essentially a stand-in for for the for the real world Soap opera, daytime soap operas are supposed to appeal to the everyday viewer who is watching, watching that show. And so you, you know, let's just say that, that the hospital, 
the Haddonfield Memorial really is the only hospital, looking looking past the fact that it is sparsely staffed, it's still a pretty roomy hospital. Like, it can accommodate uh, not only uh, emergencies and trauma patients, but maybe maybe specialty care. And which is to say that it sort of looks like a big city hospital, which is weird because Haddonfield is supposed to be a small town and we're supposed to be making a commentary about the disintegration of community. <laughs> yeah. And also interesting is the hospital from the outside and also from the labyrinthine mechanical area, I guess the basement of the hospital that we see when Michael chases Lori down there and also with the security guard, the huge like furnace room or something. But apparently the ER is right next to the maternity ward because the same nurses are at a nurse station and they're looking into a maternity ward room window to where all the newborn babies are yet they're supposed to be er nurses so so i guess the maternity wing and the er wing are the only two wings that are open in this hospital and everything else is shut down and moved to the Fitz grove hospital or wherever else it is yes and if you'll notice when michael killed off the nurse assigned to the maternity wing we never saw it again. The The fate of those babies is just sort of hanging in the air. <laughs> Especially with that giant explosion. Just to fast forward to the end, like, did that take out the maternity war too? Like, I know. <laughs> that would be really sad at the end if all the babies went out too in that explosion. That, that, would, be, that would be a huge oversight on both the writers and the directors to just kind of forget they had a, a maternity ward in the hospital. <laughs> the hospital burned, but Lori's okay, so yay. Well, yeah, that's what's important, right? <laughs> we have a hospital, we have Lori, and we have Michael, <laughs> and we have staff members who do not number very in, the, in, in, in numbers at all, and gradually they are all killed off by Michael, including that one scene of note that takes place in, what is that supposed to be? The therapy room with the hot tub? I, I think the nurse called it the therapy room. But what, I think so. What kind, yeah. Yeah. So the way they died in that hot tub was pretty grim. <laughs> yeah. This is like such an iconic scene from this movie where they're skinny dipping in the therapy pool i guess then as as you do when you work in a hospital yeah, it's the nurse and the emt <laughs> the emt with the new thick new york accent even though he yeah, was not not jimmy <laughs> yeah not cute jimmy this is the older Stevie <laughs> the one. other guy so they're hanging out in the hot tub then the nurse complains it's too hot so he gets up and leaves to adjust it and michael kills him one of the great scenes that kind of go is a throwback to the original where the camera is focused on the nurse, but you see in the background out of focus, Michael kill the EMT behind her out of focus, which is just, it's always really haunting to me when they show, show Michael in the background. out, of And then Michael turns the temperature up on the hot tub to the point where it becomes scalding because apparently this, why would you make manufacture a hot tub that can produce temperatures that would kill somebody i don't understand right. why aren't there any safeties on it right? like and there's even a label saying like warning scalding it's like 
But then th- this scene is just so gruesome how he just like shoves her head underwater repeatedly. And each time she comes up, her face is more burned until it's basically melted it, off. It's it's definitely a very uh, graphic scene to be sure. And, you know, that's what these movies are, 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 are supposed to do, right? They, they're, they're supposed to have like the most gruesome deaths that you can produce. I, I looked up, I was reading up on Halloween 2 on Wikipedia and uh, the actress who played that nurse who was unfortunately scalded to death, she mentioned that when they were pumping water into the bathtub, they actually couldn't get the water to warm up. So it was freezing and, uh, and you know, she had no clothes. And so she really had to up her acting chops to pretend that she's scalding when in reality she was just freezing to death. <laughs> Yeah, I think th- that's that's not surprising, but like such such one of those behind the scenes stories I love. And I think she also says something about getting an ear infection or something too from filming that. Yeah, oh, not 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 easy to act like you're being scalded when your head is going to. F- I feel like anytime an actor has to pretend to be drowning or something, it always freaks me out because I couldn't imagine being forced to hold my head underwater even just and pretend like that? Well, a few years ago, I would have never known what it felt like to to be burned. And so if you would ask me uh, to act out a scene where I am burned to death, I would really have to do my research and read up on it and muster what I would think would be the convincing reaction. Unfortunately, I did actually accidentally burned my hand uh, a couple of a couple of years ago it was not a pleasant experience and I do remember that pain (laughs) Uh, it's not something that you uh, that you forget about and so keeping that in mind uh, I really have to give a lot of credit to this act for all of the difficult conditions that of of this set she was really able to portray dying (laughs) really well this the final once michael gets to the hospital from there to the end it's like death after death after death and each one is like so interesting and so iconic like so we have that one and then we have the death of the doctor with a syringe to the eye like he gets wheeled around and the nurse discovers him with a syringe sticking out of his eye really creepy and then michael this is another out of focus thing michael's mask just his mask i don't know how they did it but with his mask being so stark white like it appears just his mask out of the shadows behind the nurse and then he kills her such a great scene that felt like it could have been in the original like the director just perfect that that was just a perfect scene i think uh how that played out oh and then the other nurse the death of the other nurse who's bleeding out and then jimmy who slips and falls in her blood that was a um odd occurrence to me because uh as you you'll recall pace when we were watching the movie i immediately thought he was dead and apparently i was so panicked you had to calm me down and say no he's not no he's not dear (laughs) chill (laughs) but you're right about the previous scene about the nurse walking into the doctor's office and finding him stabbed in the eye and how michael comes at her and how well done that is because for me, I, 
I'm surprised that I didn't even think that was going to happen. Like Michael coming out of the shadows like that was a complete surprise to me. And I think it's because I was sucked in to the nurse's astonishment about not just the doctor being dead, but having been killed in that gruesome way. And you're in that moment of shock and you don't realize, oh, wait a minute, Michael is lurking in the darkness. And yeah, as, as you said, the way it was filmed, just as an just as an aesthetic point of view, it was it was really nice. Like this is something if if I were to like crop it out into a video clip or something, I might submit it, I might submit it to the Museum of Modern Art or something here in San Francisco and have them put it on the sixth floor where they have all of the video installations because I really think that 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 mask coming out and you know juxtaposed with the nurse who's about to become his victim really really poetic which is something that I don't typically say about horror movies especially slasher movies I mean there's clearly artistry so I don't want our listeners to get it wrong and think that I don't like this movie I love this movie it's a great slasher film and there's a lot of artistry into and care that went into the writing of the film by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill and a lot of care by the director into directing the film, especially for his first go at a major motion picture. But so, but still like, so my, I think my criticisms are still valid, but it doesn't take away from the fact that there are these clear artistic moments that just really shine in this film and really help set the scene or set the mood. And that brings us, well, one more death that I don't want to forget. There's a security guard who dies as well. Then the other nurse who gets stabbed in the back and lifted up with just a scalpel somehow is able to support her entire weight like a few feet off the ground. And then her, it's almost comic how her shoes just yes. drop off her feet. It, yeah, yeah. I, I totally got that sense. Yeah, as you mentioned, the security... <laughs> so this security guard <laughs> who gets killed off by Michael is just so careless like he really he really um he really gives new meaning to that derogatory term rent-a-cop because he leaves his post and he gives his um his radio uh walkie-talkie to the nurse and the nurse is like I don't know how to work this thing and he just shrugs it off and it's like what is the use in you leaving that behind if you're not going to really quickly even bother to show her how 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 to work it? I it was it just seems so odd to me. It's it seems like a convenient setup. You know, that you it's foreshadowing an unfortunate moment later on where they won't be able to communicate with each other because she doesn't know how to walk work the walkie-talkie. Yeah, for sure. And I was just thinking as you said that about how in the original film you have Laurie on the phone with her friend as her friend is being murdered. And so this walkie-talkie is almost this movie's reproduction of that, where you think she's going to hear him get murdered on the walkie-talkie, but because she doesn't know how to use it, it doesn't happen and there's this miscommunication. And so she doesn't even know he dies until much later in the Well, I don't think she ever knows he dies before she dies. And that's just one of the things is there isn't a lot of people discovering that might in both the original film and this film there's a lot of michael killing people before they know there's an 
before they know there's a killer out on the list. Unlike a lot of slasher films where that happens at first, but then the final few scenes, you have the characters trying to stand up to the slasher or run away from the slasher, and that becomes like the whole second and third act film. This film, the only Loomis and Laurie know that Michael is up until towards the very end. And then Laurie, that one of the best sequences of the whole film is that cat and mouse game where Laurie finally is kind of back to her original character from the first film. She's, I guess she got enough of the tranks out of her system or something that she can be up and walking around because she's trying to find help. The nurses aren't there. And so she knows something is wrong. And then she sees Michael kill the nurse, lift her up with his scalpel. And so she runs away. And that from that sequence until the very end is just so full of suspense and so full of mood. And that mood setting, that cat and mouse game, when she goes down into the basement and discovers the body of the security guard, when he almost catches her as she's trying to fit through the window, and she's able to just escape through the window, to when she finally escapes the hospital. She's outside, and you think the movie's finally going to be over. She goes into the car and is about to leave, and then Jimmy comes out, and he's about to drive her away and save the day. And then he passes out on the steering wheel. The horn, the horn just goes off, and she, she realizes. I was just absolutely mortified at that. I'm like, you, of all the things, you do not want a horn going off consistently when you're trying to evade a possibly otherworldly serial killer. I know. And then when she can't get the car on, and all the tires are slashed, and then. Loomis, you see Loomis come up with the cop, with the other cop and his the nurse we were introduced in the first film are all going to the hospital. And Lori sees them and is trying to call out for them, but her voice is like too, she can't quite find her voice till it's too late. Like all that is just like so tense during the scene and it works so well, I think. And then as soon as the door closes, she finally is able to call for help. And by then it's too late. And so then she runs to the door back into the hospital where Michael is. And then we see Michael has made it outside and is chasing her. And she's trying to get in before. Like, it's just so, so great. So great. This is one of the reasons I think I, when I first saw this film, I just loved number two. Because this final act is really, really And And what you're saying is reminding me of how, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Rick Rosenthal would later go on to the Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode, Normal Again, which also takes place in a hospital, but not primarily. But what that episode has in common with Halloween 2 is that Rick Rosenthal manages to make this interior space, um, you know, one that is, is, is emanating with danger. And so in Halloween 2, as you said, there's a lot of tenseness and, and suspense as Michael is chasing Laurie and Laurie is trying to evade Michael. And in the Buffy episode that Rosenthal would later later direct, even though the hospital is not the episode's primary location, it is still quite evocative. He just has a sense of making a hospital creepy and not necessarily in a stereotypical way. He brings up that sense of the uncertainty that is the thing that makes us creeped out about hospitals, right? You don't know if 
if you know you're going to go in there and come back out with some kind of horrible diagnosis in some cases you don't even know if you're going to come back out at all and the other location in that buffy episode where the action takes place is inside buffy's house specifically in the basement where the enemy of that episode is holding all of the characters captive and so if i were to have watched that Buffy episode right after Halloween too, which I really should have done. Yeah, you could really, you can really see that Rick Rosenthal has a distinct style and the time gap between Halloween two and season six of Buffy the Vampire Slayer is quite long, but Rosenthal is a consistent director and starting out as he did on Halloween two, like it's, it's like he's already established who he is as a director, in my opinion. One other thing I want to touch on before we get into um, our deep dive into some of the theology stuff is just, I feel like John Carpenter and Deborah Hill's intention for Michael at the end of this movie was that he was dead. You you get this very termini- Terminator Michael, as I said before, where he sur- He barely stumbles as he's getting shot, just keeps walking, gets shot in the face twice with that really iconic blood running out of his eye holes. Really kind of cool scene there um, when Laurie... And then he gets blown up when Loomis turns on all the gas and he gets blown up. Loomis presumably dies in the explosion. And Michael, you see him walking out of the explosion and then finally stumbling and then presumably dying as it kind of zooms in on the mask melting as it's on fire towards the end of the film. So I feel like, and then we see Laurie, of course, getting transferred to the other hospital and saying that after all night, they finally reached her parents. So parents of the year award there because they said they finally reached her parents and they're going to meet her at the new hospital or something like that. And so, yeah, exactly. Where, where was Laurie's parents throughout this whole ordeal? party they even say that there's like oh they're at the same party as the other nurse it's like what is this party that everybody is at i know and they just stayed at that party and never even visited their daughter in the right? hospital like is it like is is like haddonfield like this huge swingers town is it like this huge like orgy swingers party like that's the only thing i could see like taking all night with all the adults in town going to this huge like orgy swinger party or something like what else would it be it's you know it's exactly that pace it is it is i'd like to confirm that now. no i'm just kidding i'm just <laughs> so but yeah i think my guess is if you were in the movie theater this is pre it becoming a trope where the killer always comes back so this is still in the very early ages the way this movie ends do you think that you expect to see michael myers come back or do you think that the film is basically putting a closure on the Michael Myers thing and saying he's dead, he's gone? Well, I mean, knowing what we know, of course, Michael is not gone. But just from having watched Halloween 2 on its own as a new viewer, I would think that, yeah, this is the end, that maybe this might even be the final chapter. And wherever they're taking Laurie to, at the end of the movie in the hospital, she's going to be rehabilitated and she's going to have a lot of therapy to deal with in her adulthood. But that's the end of this chapter is that's my, my conclusion would be right off the bat. Yep. I I feel the same way. I think that it was very clearly John Carpenter 
kind of putting all the ambiguity to rest. Michael is done. And that's why for Halloween three, they kind of move a completely different direction. Cause I feel like the Michael story in the audience's mind and the director's mind and in Carpenter's mind is Michael is the storyline. Yes. And you know, for Halloween three, at least he was done. <laughs> Anything else do you want to say about the story before we get into some deep theological stuff? Well, you know, we've had a pretty good discussion about the movie itself, but as we like to say in in our line of work, <laughs> transitioning to what you had just mentioned just now, where is God in Halloween 2? <laughs> that is the question. I think in much of this film franchise, especially the first two, is it's so bleak. It, it really does beg the question, is there good and if, and if there is good, where is it? Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. And Loomis even says something to that point earlier when he says there's basically, I can't remember the exact quote, but he says something how there's good and bad in all of us. And then he kind of makes that distinction from Michael where Michael's just evil personified. But that kind of, there, there's a term that the reformer Martin Luther used, simul uses a peccator, which is Latin term, but it translates to that all believers are equal parts, essentially saint and sinner at the same time. So, so, and so according to this theology, everybody has the capacity for good and evil and humans have their own kind of innate righteous within them, this innate ability to do good. And it's kind of, for Luther anyway, unlocked through the Holy Spirit and Christ's, Christ's righteousness, which enters into human and allows and produce good works. Yet humans are also, while we are, according to Luther's theology, while we are redeemed by Jesus and capable of great things through the Holy Spirit and all that, we are also not fully at the state of perfection. We're in this constant inability to escape sin or escape harming those around us and so i think i'm not sure if i shared this metaphor before or not in one of our episodes i think i did but it's kind of the way we the way i think of sin that works with luther's way of seeing is kind of the structural sin that we are all kind of embedded in so so things that cause us harm like capitalism in the way in the harm that's doing to the environment or the ways that we are are in this culture that uh, has racism and colorism and all these things like that. So we try our best to do what's right, yet we are always kind of interacting these systems where we can't help but cause harm, maybe not out of our own doing, our own willpower, but nevertheless, just by virtue of living, we, we are doing harm to the earth to each other uh and to ourselves so i feel like so i feel like that's kind of to loomis's point like we and to what you're saying as well that it's very that the standpoint of this film i think is that things might seem idyllic on the surface but there's this evil that kind of lurks underneath in this and so we all have that kind of capacity to walk that line between good and evil. And I think that's one of the takeaways from this film is, ha- is Michael is clearly on the one side and Loomis who is dressed. So I want to be careful just as a quick aside, lots 
of tropes of film is to use darkness as symbolism for evil and light for good. And there's all sorts of race living in a racist society and a society where racism is an ongoing problem and how skin color gets associated with that. So uh, people of color, especially black and brown people tend to be their, their skin color gets assigned as that evil darkness. And then white is assigned with purity and that, clearly it's a problem and that happens in films so i just want to say that as we talk about that that i know that that's a real issue and yet this this film plays into that trope by having loomis wearing very light colored clothes as i think this film is really loomis is the protagonist of this film because laurie's kind of sidelined and then you have michael myers wearing these dark overalls that are really dark nature and so it's kind of this good versus evil being played out in front of us and so if loomis represents what is good and myers represents what is evil and they're both personified in this then the whole town kind of is caught somewhere in the bounce in the middle and some of it we see how many of the characters are doing good things so as a queer christian as a queer christian i have had my my fair share of encounters with Christians who are not very affirming of who I am as a queer person. And those encounters include brushing with, uh, with the evangelical community. And <laughs> one of the more irritating things that I took away from my experience with the evangelical community was their perception of good and evil. And when they're trying to characterize good, they have this expression. It is, we, we come up short. Humans are good, but we come up short. I hate that expression. It is, it is so essentializing, as we say in grad school. It's so over, it oversimplifies the human experience. And I think it is a fantastic <laughs> irony that the pushback to that is the Halloween movies. Stay with me here. Stay with me here. <laughs> so we know, as far as we know, anyway, Michael is pure evil. And that is the thing that we're either trying to combat or, or just subdue. We can never completely get rid of it because as we saw at the end of the first movie, we defenestrated Michael and then he got up and walked away. By the way, I have been looking for an excuse to use the word defenestrated <laughs> all this time. <laughs> and so we accept we accept that evil has one dimension. Its purpose really is to destroy and consume. It is a it is a destructive force. Good, I feel like it's not so easy to define. And I don't think you can just say that we as people are good and that we come up short. I think what the Halloween movies show is that people are good, but they are complex. You cannot just have a simple, a simple color of white and say, that's goodness. That's that, 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 that white represents not evil, right? White, if you want to be technical about it, is is the absence of color, I believe. Is that what, that's what they say? And so 
yes, there you can be good, but there are complexities about you. And those complexities don't necessarily make you a non-good person, much less an evil person. And, you know, we see that, uh, we see that with Lori, you know, uh, we, we, in, in the first Halloween movie, we define her as a good person by pointing out what, that she's a, she's a good student and that she, she has a great circle of friends who like her and they trust her. But she's also someone who, you know, doesn't want to be confined to the rules. You know, um, there's a scene in the first Halloween movie where she's lamenting having to babysit for the night because she really wants to be out having fun. And we could say that that's just her being a young person. But we could also say true goodness would be her saying, oh, this is my duty as a young woman (laughs) is to be here and watch these children. Uh, kind of deal. And no, goodness is not, is not that straightforward. And it's where we, where we try to oversimplify goodness that, that gets us into trouble. We have these extreme conservative beliefs and, and saying, this is wrong and this is right. This will get you into heaven. This will not. And for this reason, I will bake you and sell you a cake. But for this other reason, I will not sell you a cake. And ignoring the complexities of what it is to be a good person doesn't necessarily mean you're excusing the bad that a good person is capable of. But that doesn't mean that they are anything resembling the evil force. Good people are complex. They will make bad choices. But it's that constant, to speak theologically, that constant turning to God that separates us from that evil destructive force yeah and i would say i think that's an excellent point and thank you because first of all it wants me to make an aside about allies as a queer person but i'm not going to alienate our allies on our third episode so i'm not going to go there but pin mark that for a later discussion about it's kind of the complexities of being an ally. It's not just this one and done badge that people get, or just you're a good person and therefore you're an ally, but it's kind of this ongoing process that isn't just one and done. And I feel like that's kind of also the process of just macro level of theological anthropology, the study of what it means to be human from a theological view is just kind of this, it's not one and done thing. It's, unlike in some forms of, Christianity, where basically you say some sort of believer's prayer and magically, or you're baptized and magically you're like supposed to be a good person and that's it. That, that's not how it works. We're all these complex characters. Like you say, we all are making decisions in like this web of capitalism, these webs of patriarchy, of homophobia, of racism. So we're all, so none of our decisions are perfectly pure whatever that means and we even see that with Lori in the first film when she's smoking pot and so one of the things like in later slasher films that the first two halloween films are not like this at all in later slasher films you can usually find out immediately who the final girl is because she's the prudish one who is the virtuous one who does who abstains from drugs and alcohol she abstains from sex all those things and then you have the other characters who are doing 
you have the asshole characters who you're rooting for to get killed. You have the characters who you still feel sympathetic for, but maybe marital sex or maybe one's a pothead or whatever. So they all get killed. So it kind of becomes this morality play. But in the first two Halloween films, it, you really feel for pretty much all the victims because they're all unsuspecting what's going to happen, especially the um, in the hospital when they are all just going about their jobs without any clue that there's this evil serial killer in their hallways yet so you see them making complex decisions no one is this final girl sort of virtuous character ever and so everybody's death doesn't feel justified it's all unsettling and i feel like that's the point because you genuinely care for these characters and the story isn't telling you they these are the people who are going to die because they are smoking or pot or they are having pre so it really is just this you don't want anyone to die. And yet you, at the same time, that's where you're getting the thrill from as a horror fanatic is that it, that that's what you root for. You start to root for Michael Myers at the same time. <laughs> so, and, you know, I want to clarify that um, in the first movie, when Laurie is smoking pot, the sense, uh, the sense that I feel that that moment is trying to convey is that this is a rebellious thing. She shouldn't be doing it. And as for me, I have no issue with that, uh, you know, especially in this day and age when uh, when it's so normalized now that we can order it for delivery. <laughs> but it's it really speaks a lot to the fact that Lori was the one doing the smoking. And so it's conveying that sense of she's here's a good girl and yet she smokes pot. And it's like, yes, that is the complexity of her as a person. And we'll see this again years later in the Scream franchise, uh, Nev Campbell, who is the sweet girl of the entire franchise, she even has the look, the face for it. She's got those doe eyes, <laughs> you know, that just scream, I'm the nice girl in the movie. And yet in the first movie, she's inviting pretty much Skeet Ulrich to crawl up into her room, <laughs> you know? And we're supposed to accept that as an aberration of being a good person, no, that does not diminish who she is as a good person because she is ultimately the good person of that franchise just because we're showing the scene of a boy who is slipping into her room and she's consenting for it to happen that that doesn't ruin that doesn't ruin the goodness of of this person just as showing Lori smoking the pot. <laughs> no that doesn't make her a bad person yeah, i think her... you make a very good point that i think um, i want to be clear on too and you've already said this so i just want to add in and say that i personally don't think there's anything wrong with being promiscuous or smoking pot or anything i feel like these are the societal tropes that the film plays on to show that this character is being um somehow immoral or not virtuous or something like that which is I feel like marijuana and being promiscuous, stuff like that are just benign. That is fine. Like live your life. That's no problem. But it's clear that especially in later slasher films, that this becomes a clear morality sort of judgment or not even such so much of a judgment as I do think that there's something to be said about it being a morality. Play. But I also think that it's just, it just became the trope like that. 
a slasher film, you have the group of teenagers. There's always going to be the asshole bully. There's always going to be the pothead. There's always going to be the two horny ones who get killed right after having sex. It's like that just becomes the characters and it becomes so formulaic. But but there clearly is still like a moral judgment there. And I feel like the Halloween film, if anything, both the first two are saying that we shouldn't be so quick to judge these characters because nobody is purely virtuous just as we aren't. And so, so it's like, don't, what is that saying right out of the Bible? I'm not a biblical scholar, friends. I'm a theologian. <laughs> so I always joke about, I don't know my Bible well, but, but yeah, something about like, don't, don't remove the log out of your eye before you complain about a speck in somebody else's or whatever that is that Jesus says. So, so it's kind of one of those things. It's like, don't cast judgment on all these people because they're just, I, I feel like that's, there is this kind of, the first film with all the babysitters, I mean, it's this loss of innocence, these young people getting killed unexpectedly. That should be shocking. It should not be seen as a, oh, they deserved it in some way. Why? It, it just kind of goes to show you that sometimes life can be really, really shitty. Things can happen. Earthquakes, tsunamis hurricanes, famines, people can get cancer. And that is not a reflection on anybody being good or evil or anything like that. It's just sometimes the world is shitty. Sometimes bad things happen. And that doesn't mean God is punishing you. And it doesn't mean that Michael Myers in some sort of is some sort of stand-in for God's judgment, like some later flashers become. This is just random acts of people being in the wrong place in the wrong time and just bad, just horrible things happening to people. And I, what I like about this uh, movie, just to to bring it back to this briefly, is what I was talking about earlier is just kind of some of those glimpses of how this town, all the different ways the town is reacting to all these deaths and is something I like about this film because we see we, we see how it plays out when like these tragedies and traumatic events happen. We kind of see the ramifications of that. And that's something, I guess, last thing I'll say um, about this is that I think that's something that many slashers don't do is you kind of leave with the final girl or whatever victorious and walking away after having slain the person. But it's like, what is her life? gonna be like what is Lori's life gonna be like or anybody else's life gonna be like after this you mentioned lots of therapy and so like it's going to have lasting impact that is going to haunt these people presumably for the rest of their lives and I love that about both H2O and Halloween 2018 how they in their own ways check in on Lori so many years later and show this really has affected this person like she didn't get a happy what happened Right. They they really addressed that complexity in the 2018 Halloween. And I cannot wait until we get to that episode because there are some additional dimensions there that are much more obvious than what we're gleaning from these first two these first two movies. Any any other theological discussions or are we moving on to rating it? Mm, let's move it on. Let's move on to the next uh Okay. Adventure in our podcast. <laughs> so out of 10 jack-o'-lanterns. Mm. So picking up on the rating system we used for the last film. Out of 10 jack-o'-lanterns. These ones each come with a mini skull inside that opens up. <laughs> <after you rate it. laughs> of course. Of course. 
in in homage to that great opening title sequence. So out of 10 nesting doll skull jack-o'-lanterns, what would you rate this? Hmm. Now, if I remember, I'm remembering our episode on the first Halloween, I had actually rated it higher than I was originally going to, right? I was going to give it a seven, but then I increased it to eight, if I'm remembering correctly. Yep. So let's see. I'd have to give this one some thought. And just relying (laughs) on Rick Rosenthal's strong direction here, I am going to give it a, I'm going to give it six jack-o'-lanterns with a skull in it. And it it falls short. Ugh, sorry, <laughs> sorry for bringing that up again. <laughs> but it it falls short of um, achieving the other four, just because the writing was not there. Carpenter fessed up to it. There and there's so many, there's so many inconsistencies. And you know, Faze, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a professional critic. I'm not a professional movie critic. I like to watch movies mainly for fun. And even when I am critiquing a movie, I'm also giving it credit for how much fun I had with that movie. But with with Halloween 2, <laughs> there are just some flaws that I can't forgive. And because of those unforgivable flaws, i.e. how how did Michael get from town to the hospital so quickly? <laughs> i.e. what time is it exactly? Is it is it the beginning of the night? Is it the middle of the night? I don't get it. Yeah, I, I can't give those four remaining jack-o'-lanterns with the skull in it. It's going to be a six for me. That's interesting. See, I for me, my rating is... I, I tend to rate just it by all sorts of different ways. But I think one of the primary things is what you said, is how much fun do I have watching them? And I think... One, this is pretty bleak of a movie, so there are it, parts of it just aren't fun. But if you really love gore, there's a lot, a lot of gore in this. The first movie was very had very little gore, no nudity almost, except for the snapshot of Judith, Michael Myers' sister, in the very beginning. Whereas this had more of a extended sh- uh, nude scene of the hot tub. Uh, so I feel like this movie from a gore perspective and just kind of enjoying that's one of the reasons we all love slashers right it's a little cathartic to see people getting mutilated <laughs> is that bad to say no i mean but for let's, real I mean, it's, you know, it's let's just be real let's just be real yeah it's a good release because yeah, it's a release and it's it's fiction so we know it's uh make-believe and so we can kind of enjoy that yes yes just as i i enjoyed watching michael myers butcher all of these people and secretly imagining that he was butchering the person who left me for a tango dancer but anyway <laughs> yes so so there's that aspect too but for for me i think this movie overall is still pretty enjoyable it's still there's still some genuinely scary moments not quite the level of unsettling or scariness of the original uh, but I, I would still say for me, it's a seven out of 10 because I feel like it still genuinely scares me. I still very much enjoy some of the gory moments. Like you, you could say it's kind of John Carpenter selling out, 
but but I do think it adds to the film and really kind of adds to some of the horrific dimensions of both the town with the razor blade and the apple, but also of Michael Myers really helps keep pace with some of the slasher films that came out after Halloween, uh, which, and the practical effects work pretty well for by and large. And so, so it, so it looks good on screen too. Unlike some more recent uh, movies with CGI blood, which looks so bad. That, like, CGI blood. You'll have to point these out for me to me. I, I don't know if I've seen that yet. Yeah. When we get there, I'll point it out. And it's it, CGI blood just never looked. I just, yeah. okay, now, you, now, now you're launching me into a tangent here. Let's, <laughs> let's ponder CGI blood for a moment. First of all, what is the purpose in having to artificially create blood through, 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 through digital means? We can make convincing blood without, you know, using real blood. It's, and it's more creative that way. And I, I imagine it would be more fun to make fake blood than it is to you know point and click your way <laughs> to making blood i i just wow okay maybe we'll do a separate episode on blood should it be cg or handmade <laughs> yeah practical effects for blood i love it but yeah i so yeah i guess the summary i'd say seven out of ten something we haven't talked about um yet is the characterization of michael Myers. So just want to quick say here that I feel like he was played by Dick Warlock, which is just a name, Dick Warlock. Wait, wait, is this the same actor from the first movie? No, this was a different actor. Nick Castle played the shape for Michael Myers in the original. And then and Halloween a... 2 is played by a fellow named Dick Warlock, you said? Yes. Can Can the audience and I have some time to process this person's name? Yes. <laughs> Dick Warlock, you're you're being for real, right? <laughs> yep, Dick Warlock. He is a stunt coordinator who played Halloween two, and then he also played the android, some of the androids in Halloween three. So you, we'll get more of him next uh, I, next week. When I, we talk about Halloween three. With all respect to Mr. Warlock, I, it's I just can't. That's that is that is a name that is quite quite a name, and it's making me think of a punchline from from the golden girl <laughs> where blanche goes i know that guy that's just a stage name <laughs> yes anyway okay well great job well done you mr warlock he he does a pretty good job as, as michael i think he, he doesn't quite get into the level like i feel like Nick Castle does this very like cat like performance of Michael Myers, and Dick Warlock's performance is pretty close. He he he's a pretty good Michael Myers. So I so I think that's also one of the things I like about this. What about your favorite kill? Do you have a favorite kill from the? A favorite kill. Well, before I get into that, you have made me so fascinated about Mr. Warlock, <laughs> and I did a quick Google on him, and in fact, he's still around. 81 years young. Oh my goodness. Okay. So that last name, um, Warlock, is obviously quite unique. And but when we put it together with Dick, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm immature. It just gave gives off that really unique vibe. However, I did recognize the last name 
of Michael Myers' portrayer in the second movie. It is the same last name as a soap opera actor who was on General Hospital and Days of Our Lives, Billy Warlaw. So that that's an interesting um that's an interesting connection there. It looks like the the Warlock family is, you know, very involved with the entertainment industry. <laughs> yep. That would be his son, Billy Warlock. Oh wow. I I had no idea. Wow. All right. My favorite kill from Halloween 2? Wow. I think I would have to say <laughs> I feel so morbid saying this. Years from now, if there's like a murder, a murder mystery true crime thing and somehow I'm in the middle of it, they'll go they'll say, "And yes, Joseph was a fan of Halloween and his favorite kill was when he enjoyed the hot tub scene." <laughs> I I enjoyed that I enjoyed that a lot for a couple of reasons for Number one, the utter incomprehensibility of the way these people died. You're correct. Like, it, it is a, it's gotta be some really funky design flaw that the, the water can get that hot. It, it, if, if, this is a, if this is truly a therapeutic hot tub, it, it, should, it should be, there should be something um, uh, much more regulatory about it. It shouldn't be able to get to 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And I also enjoyed the scene. I feel so strange saying that. But I also enjoyed the scene because of the way the the EMT died, whose name I can't remember. Was it Don? Was his name Don? I'm not um, sure. That's a good question. Well, so the way he, the way he, he died was, was really interesting to watch. He died behind the closed glass door. In silence, and I, I, it, it to me, it just seemed like a perfect choreography, <laughs> a choreography of death. <laughs> oh God, I'm sorry, audience. I don't mean to laugh so much. I, that's what I do when I'm uncomfortable. I, that, that's what we do with. That's why we watch horror films because I think it is cathartic, and we're allowed to kind of. It's entertainment, and it, if it was entertaining, we wouldn't be watching it. So I think we can talk about favorite kills. And appreciate them. And the EMT's name was Bud. By the Bud. Way. Okay, so Bud. Yeah, so Bud just kind of has this background death, which I thought, as I said, it was so interestingly choreographed. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm with you 100%. The hot tub scene is pretty. It, it is definitely the one that I think of when I think of this movie. One of the most iconic scenes of the film. Both both Bud's death, as he said, but also the nurses. I can't think of her name now either. How her face gets scalded off. Just very, the special effects were done well. It, it just, it really works and it kind of sticks with. Do you have, do you have a least favorite death? Because I do. Ooh, this is good. Um, I'm not sure. What What is your least favorite death? I have to think about it. The, the uh, Gloria Giffords head nurse character. We we don't even see her killed. How, how what happened? They just walked into a room and she was just what hanging there. Yeah. After an absence, you know, she just suddenly disappears from the movie for a bit, and then there she is hanging. And I thought that was just so unfair. Yeah, I think I think that's good. I think my my least favorite death, of course, that one happened off screen. I think my least favorite death is 
Michael Myers' death at the end with the explosion that wipes out the emergency room and hopefully not the um, maternity ward. But like, this feels like such, it's the film, the two films, especially back to back, are building up to what I think should be perhaps a little bit more of a climactic end to the character. And it just, and for it to be such a final end, like, but then knowing how they somehow resurrect the character coming back and back. And it just, it, that end just kind of feels a little chimmy and unearned, especially when it comes back, when he survives the fire. Actually, um, in response to your question about favorite, a favorite kill, I'm having what I'm going to call a friend's vote because Friends, the sitcom with all white people, as we know, <laughs> straight white people, for some strange reason, is one of my favorite sitcoms. And there's a very iconic scene where they're trying to see how well they know each other. So they're playing this trivia game. And one of the questions that comes up is, what is Rachel's favorite movie? And another character says, Dangerous Liaison. And the punchline is what is Rachel's actual favorite movie? And it's Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> uh, and it's the punchline, you know, because Dangerous Liaisons is the movie that you want everyone to know is your favorite because it's, you know, sophisticated and artsy. Whereas what you really enjoy is Weekend at Bernie's because it's ridiculous. So transposed to my context, what I said earlier about the lovely choreography of Bud's death still is true, but... My weekend at Bernie's moment is poor Ben <laughs> meeting his demise in a ball of fire that should not exist from a vehicular collision. I know if cars exploded like at that with that amount of ease, like I think drive. I think driving around 495 around DC would be a lot more interesting. Dear my God. I mean, were, were, were cars just built differently back then? Because if I'm remembering correctly, um, the cars were still those, you know, giant wide size cars that were so, you know, popular in the 70s, 80s. And so I'm just like, maybe cars were just different back then and they just exploded more dramatically. <laughs> <laughs> and another reason why that that scene is my ridiculous weekend at Bernie's moment is because, like, really, Ben, why are you wearing that mask of all masks to wear? <laughs> yeah. Oh man. I guess on that note, we should end. Then next week, we are continuing with Halloween Three: Season of the Witch. So it was written and directed by Tommy Lee Wallace. And- Produced by Deborah Hill and John Carpenter, the last one they were directly involved with for a while. Yeah, that movie it takes a lot of flack, but I I ended up really enjoying it. I think it's a great movie. It's weird. It's kind of the weird stepchild of the the ugly step sibling or the ugly duckling of the franchise. But I think, like you said, it takes it gets too much flack. It's it's actually an enjoyable movie pretty fun so so we'll have fun with that one next week for and with that well that's it for our show our theme music was composed and performed by matt may who also edited this episode horror nerds at church releases every thursday 
please comment, rate, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, Facebook and Instagram at horrornerds.church and Twitter at hnacpod, for all the latest updates about upcoming films, news, and other announcements. Until next time, don't wear a Michael Myers mask if your name is Ben Tramer and wander around aimlessly around the town. And then when police start coming after you, run away and then get involved in this huge nuclear mushroom of a car. Please look both ways when you're crossing the street. Take care, everyone. Until next time. Till next time.